traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In the late 1970s, Douglas Diamond was a PhD student at Yale, studying under Stephen A. Ross. Steve was an amazing advisor and stupendous mentor. Ross was known for developing theories in financial economics, covering things like arbitrage pricing and binomial options. He was also known for another reason. Steve used to have this policy of not making appointments, but you would have to sit outside his door waiting to see when he had some time to talk. So Diamond would often find himself waiting outside Ross's door. He had an assistant who was very nice and gave us cookies and things like that while we sat out there, too. And he'd often be snacking with a fellow student, Philip Dibvig. While out there, we we talked to each other quite a bit. And while we were in graduate school, we sort of came up with the idea we wanted to work together on something. Diamond was particularly interested in the Great Depression and why bank runs happen. Dibvig was game. So we thought we need to think about the idea of how we can use some parts of game theory to understand financial crises. It wasn't until after they both finished their PhDs that the pair published their paper in 1983, Bank Runs, Deposit Insurance and Liquidity. It came out the same year as another paper on a similar subject by an economist whose name you might recognize. What this paper introduced, or at least uh, highlighted, was the idea that uh, developments in the financial system can have important macroeconomic effects. Ben Bernanke. His paper was called Non-Monetary Effects of the Financial Crisis in the Propagation of the Great Depression. Together with Diamond and Dibbig's paper, they're two of the most cited papers in economics. And this week... The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award Sveriges Riksbanks Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel for 2022 to Ben Benanke, the Brookings Institution, Washington, D.C., USA, Douglas Diamond, the University of Chicago, in USA, and Philip Dubvig at Washington University in St. Louis, USA. They obtained the prize for research on banks and financial crises. You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show, we break down why Bernanke, Diamond and Dibvig's research into financial crises was worthy of this year's Nobel Prize in economics. Firstly, we'll hear more from Douglas Diamond and Philip Dibvig on why they think their model has been so influential. It's not the kind of model you plug a formula in to figure out how much you should raise the interest rate or something. This is a model you put into your head and in a crisis you say, "Uh oh, this stuff is starting to happen. I need to change gears. 
Then, we'll look at the research that former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke published the same year that also upended assumptions about financial crises. The simple idea that the financial system it can be a driver of uh, economic activity and unemployment was not conventional wisdom in 1983. Finally, we'll look at why their insights have remained so resonant. These weren't completely new insights, but these three economists, they provided mathematical models of this kind of existing informal knowledge, and that made it more helpful to economists. And we'll ask if there is still a danger that those lessons are being forgotten. Hey, Mike and Alice. Hey, Samaya. Greetings from Bogota, Colombia, where I'm at one of the biggest crypto conferences of the year, uh, DevCon, which is in person for the first time since 2019. It's sort of comically fitting that you're off exploring the, the new financial system, which has recently rediscovered all the old perils of bank run like events. Uh, at the same time as the Nobel Committee is handing out its annual award for research into pretty much exactly the same thing in uh, mainstream finance. Yes, I mean, DevCon and the Nobel Awards are, are practically the same event. The conference opened yesterday with an extended dance break by a group of people dressed in unicorn onesies. I imagine that is how the Swedish Academy of Science will want to let next year's uh, Nobel winners know. Yeah, well, it might actually be a more effective method of communicating than the one they have now. The method they are currently using is not foolproof. Take Professor Philip Dibvig, who I spoke to the day after he won. Philip, hello, and congratulations. Uh, could you start by telling us how you found out that you had won? So um, I think I may have been lucky that I was out of town. As a result, uh, if there were people camped out in front of my house, they didn't get the story. Uh, and they also didn't wake me up in the early hours of the morning. So when the alarm went off, I had hundreds of messages backed up. And somebody had told me a couple of days before they're going to choose a Nobel Prize on Monday. I hope you get it. And uh, so I thought I didn't get the Nobel Prize, did I? So I went to the Nobel Prize website and there was my name. That's amazing. It's like checking to see if you've been cast in the school play or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I spoke with Professor Douglas Diamond, who also seemed to have been caught off guard. Doug, hello, and congratulations. Can you tell me what it was like getting the call from the Nobel Committee? Well, not surprisingly, I was sound asleep and a little disoriented. And I picked up the phone, and there's a nice Swedish voice on there asking, is this Douglas W. Diamond? I said yes, and uh, said, well, I have some very important good news for you, and then explained that I had won this prize, and I was quite happy with that, and, you know, I was probably 99% sure it wasn't a fake. Uh, but then they passed on to two of, to three of the, of the committee members, two of whom I know well enough to recognize their voice. And it was, in fact, the real thing. And I, I said, okay, that's nice. Uh, well, thank you very much. Okay, that's nice. Has to go down as one of the biggest understatements of all time. Right. And we didn't manage to speak with Ben Bernanke, but the Brookings Institution, where he now works, had a press conference. And he said... Oh, wow. A lot of people came. Oh, boy. You know, the baseball playoffs are on. All right. Well, um, so I am incredibly honored, of course, uh, to be a co-winner of the Ricks Bank Prize in Economic Sciences in the memory of Alfred Nobel, to give it the correct full name of the prize. It was completely unexpected. Uh, my wife and I shut off our cell phones when we went to bed last night, not thinking about this issue. 
Um, and it was our daughter in Chicago who was finally contacted and called us on the landline to inform us that this, uh, this had happened. Yeah, I guess there's a little bit of the old sort of, oh, shucks, little old me posturing uh, when these get announced. Some some might say. It should also be said that the Diamond Dipping model has been seen as a contender for some time. It is one of the most cited papers in economics, over 13,000 on Google Scholar. And at least at first, the model seems kind of obvious. It explains why it can be rational to take part in a bank run. And sure, you know, if, if everyone is taking their money out of a bank, you don't want to be the last person in line. That's pretty intuitive to most people. But there's much more to it than that. This week, to help us make sense of why these three won this year's prize, we're joined by our colleague Gavin Jackson, who wrote the piece on this year's award. Gavin, hello. Hello. I'm excited to be making my Money Talks debut. Well, we thought we'd go easy on you and have you explain some hardcore theoretical financial economics. Yeah, thanks for that. As I mentioned, I spoke to both Professor Diamond and Dibfig for this episode. I'm going to play a bit of our interview, and then, Gavin, I am curious to get your thoughts. Sure. So, Professor Diamond, you were awarded this prize for the model you created with Philip Dibvig, who you were a graduate student with. The model looks at bank runs and was inspired by what happened in the Great Depression. Why were you so interested in that period? I had taken a course when I was in college at Brown University. The whole semester was one book. It was a book by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz called A Monetary History of the United States. And there was a chapter in that book called The Great Contraction, which is all about the Great Depression in the United States and the bank failures that occurred. And they had a description, wasn't like a mathematical model, they had a description of how the damage from the bank failures occurred. And I thought that there was only part of the story. So I had this idea that we could think about bank runs in a game theoretic way where there was like more than one kind of equilibrium. If there was an equilibrium, everybody thought the bank would be stable. That's right. Everybody thought the bank would be unstable. That's right, too. So there are two self-fulfilling prophecies. But I hadn't really thought about how to model that. So I talked to Phil, and we were thinking this was something, just using game theory you know, to make these ideas formal. We'd sit down to try to do that. So that's how we got onto it. And this surprised me. In the 1970s, the U.S. already had deposit insurance. It's not like there were no policies in place designed to protect people's deposits. So I asked Professor Dibbig what he saw back then. Why did you think there was more there to uncover? Well, there, there are several things going on. I think, first of all, I'm not sure that we thought of deposit insurance in terms of protecting against runs or if we thought about it primarily in terms of protecting the customers and insuring the customers. But the other thing is that we were just curious about it. We thought that it's really important if you're going to think about regulating banks, what's the economic role of banks? What are the considerations when you're regulating banks? And what do you do? We actually had a kind of strange pushback. When Doug was presenting the paper at Penn, a member of the audience, quote, accused him of doing uh, economic history. He says, you know, you're presenting this in the wrong seminar. Kind of what you're saying that, that you know, this isn't the Great Depression. Why are you studying this thing that's only of historical interest? So it certainly wasn't 
the hot topic, but I've never liked working on hot topics. I like working on things that people aren't thinking about right now. And if, if it becomes the hot topic, then maybe you've started something. Now, as someone who spends their life chasing hot topics, I obviously admire their commitment to cooler ones. But Gavin, let's pause here. What do you make of that? At that time, was the economic role of banks understudied? Yeah, I think that's actually completely fair. So if you think back to the sort of context of when they were writing this in the early 1980s, the US hadn't experienced any bank runs for quite a long time. And in fact, in, in 1980, Congress had passed an act to deregulate the financial system. So there was really a feeling, and this was sort of the general intellectual backdrop of economics at the time, that everything was about self-interested people making rational decisions. You know, it was the time of micro-foundations and rational expectations in the markets. So there wasn't this idea of, oh, let's worry about all these um, institutions that could be a sort of instability. And the paper for which Ben Bernanke won the Nobel as well, that was doing the same thing. Let me talk just very briefly about the research that was cited by the committee. They cited in particular my 1983 39-year-old American Economic Review uh, paper on banking in the Great Depression. Looking back on it, it looks a little bit primitive after 40 years, but it did have, I think, some fruitful ideas. In particular, at the time I was working on this, which was at the height of real business cycle theory and the like, people didn't think of the financial system as being an important part of the business cycle, an important part of what was driving the economy. Um, as one uh, professor told me when I gave this paper, the financial system is just a veil. It just tells you who owns what. It doesn't have any independent effect on the economy. But what I argued and what the, this, this paper introduced or at least uh, highlighted was the idea that uh, developments in financial system can have important macroeconomic effects. It was going back to the 1930s and taking a look at the way in which banking failures in the financial system can affect the, the sort of what we call the real economy. And in a lot of the models at the time and, and afterwards, banking and finance was just neglected. It just wasn't in there in the macroeconomic models. The idea was that there were savers and investors and banks could just be dispensed with. What mattered was how the savers and investors directly related to each other, not through these institutions we call banks. Okay, so bank runs were not a hot topic at that time, but they clearly occupied the minds of Dibvig and Diamond. They came up with this paper and this model. I asked them to explain it. Professor Diamond says they started by asking themselves, why do banks set themselves up so that bank runs could happen in the first place? Our goal was to say, if bank runs are so bad when they happen... Why do banks set themselves up in a way where this bad thing could happen? Why don't you just make it so it couldn't happen? And then if you, don't, if you get rid of all the bad stuff, you'll get good stuff. The short story was, if they leave themselves subject to runs, the bank can create more liquid assets than the economy otherwise has. In other words, in leaving themselves open to this bad option, banks can provide more liquidity. Here's how Diamond explains it. People like to hold liquid assets because they don't know how long they're going to need their money. They might lose their job. They might, might want to buy a house. They might want to reinvest in a new business. So people like liquidity, real business assets like plant and equipment. They're not very liquid. How can we use something that later called financial engineering to make liquid assets out of illiquid? Suppose we pool all these people together. They all put their money in the bank. 
We don't know who's going to need their money, but we know 20% of them are going to need it early, 80% of them are going to need it later. So we don't have to hold enough liquidity for 100% of the people to take their money out, just enough for 20%. So we're going to say it's a type of insurance. It's a risk-sharing arrangement, just the way like we insure fire insurance or life insurance. We're insuring each other against the need for liquidity. Liquidity means I need my money early instead of late. Okay, so we set that up. And then they're going to say, okay, the bank writes a contract saying, this is a great contract if 20% of their people pull their money out and 80% of their people leave their money in. And as long as that's what people think is going to happen, it works like a charm. So what do banks do? They provide insurance against liquidity. And as long as it works, it works. But then when it doesn't work well, it's a problem. Here's Professor Dibvig. In the model, it's also possible that you take out your money even though you don't really need it. And the reason that you do that in the model is that if I think everybody else is going to take out their money, even if the bank is in principle quite sound and they've got these long-term investments that should cover all the withdrawals, if everybody decides to withdraw at once, they're in trouble. So if I think everybody else is going to take out their money, then I know that to satisfy their claims, the bank is going to liquidate some assets at a loss and there won't be anything left for me. So I better try to take out my money now as well. So this is a way of, of modeling what, what had largely been viewed as a psychological phenomenon a mass hysteria as optimal behavior on the part of the agents. It's not optimal for them as a group. They'd all be better off if people just took out their money when they need it. But it's individually optimal. If you think other people are going to take out their money, then you better get in line too. And that is the key thing. Liquidity goes hand in hand with fragility. I think that actually formalizing this role of banks for providing liquidity and and explaining uh, how that is tied to the fragility of banks was something that was new. Professor Diamond tied it to a much more recent example, Lehman. This is a different view of financial crises than the one that companies lost a lot of money, made the banks fail, the banks failed because the companies lost a lot of money. Here we're saying, even if the, the companies who the banks lent to didn't lose any money, the banks could just fail because people thought the banks were going to fail. So think of Lehman. Lehman unexpectedly defaults. Lehman was financed with lots and lots of short-term debt, repos and things like that. Now everybody's saying, gee, maybe all the other short-term debt financed firms are going to go out of business. Maybe Morgan Stanley's going to go under. Maybe Goldman Sachs is going to go under. You know, maybe Merrill Lynch is going to go under. So people started not lending money to those people. People who understood our insight are going to say, okay, you got to do more than just say things are fine right now. You got to make sure that there's plenty of liquidity and maybe even some injected capital insolvency to keep those firms from just going under. Gavin, what do you make of the model? Dibvig says essentially their innovation was explaining that the liquidity that the banking system provides is also the source of its fragility. And so this is something that policymakers of all stripes need to keep in mind when regulating not just banks, but anything that provides liquidity and has a mismatch between liquidity of assets and the liquidity needs of consumers. So I really like the model. 
it's very simple. It's a very basic model of the banking sector, but that lets you get this key insight out very easily that it's all about liquidity mismatch. And that's very helpful to regulators. So they can apply this to other settings where there's a liquidity mismatch. Because bank runs can happen even when there are no consumers. So it can be the people who finance a bank or finance some other financial company who try and pull their funding out of it. And that creates the same phenomenon as a bank run, like we saw during Lehman Brothers. And that was similar, again, to what Bernanke was looking at in the 1980s, which is what is the economic role of the banking system, and therefore what does its failure do to the wider economy? So the idea, it's the simple idea that the financial system it can be a driver of uh, economic activity and unemployment uh, was something that this paper emphasized was not conventional wisdom in 1983. And for Bernanke, what he was looking at was also to do with liquidity and panics, but in his case, he was looking at the economics of asymmetric information. When borrowers come to lenders, the borrowers have more information about their own ability to repay, their own plans, their own finances, than the lender does. And that creates costs because the lender has to learn about the borrower's capacity to repay before making a loan. Um, this is what's called an agency problem in, in theoretical economics, that, that in a sense, the lender is looking to the borrower to use the money that is lent in a productive way. Now, one of the insights here is that in standard principal agent problems, when the agent has a good bit of wealth, the principal agent problems become simpler because the agent can cover you know, losses that might occur due to their own actions. In periods of crisis, the credit mechanism breaks down. Nobody knows for sure who is solvent. Nobody knows for sure what the wealth or collateral of other uh, agents in the economy is. And that can create tremendous problems in the credit mechanism. And that, in turn, can have economic effects. Now, these weren't completely new insights. I mean, Walter Badger, the former editor of The Economist, was talking about similar things all the way back in the 1870s in his book, Lombard Street. But these three economists, they provided mathematical models of this kind of existing informal knowledge, and that made it more helpful to economists because they could build more things into these models and they put it into the language of this kind of rational, self-interested, optimising individuals that was really dominant in the economics field at the time. OK, Gavin, great. Now, after the break, we'll look at the real-world impact of their insights, including, of course, Bernanke's handling of the 2008 financial crisis. But before then... Wherever I am in the world, even in Colombia, it is my favourite time of the show. Where we tell you that it's a great time to take out a subscription to The Economist. As well as Gavin's piece on this year's Nobel winners, I can really recommend a special report by our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, that looks at China's attempts to change the current world order and if they are succeeding. It's a really, really fascinating read, and it's also tied to our first narrative podcast, The Prince. If you haven't listened to that yet, I would really, really recommend it. It's very good. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. If you're already a subscriber, thank you very much for putting food on our table. You should write to us at podcast at economist.com and let us know what you think of the show. You can also sign up for our newsletters like Money Talks and The Bottom Line. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Gavin, we've covered the insights of the research. Now let's talk about the impact of that research. Sure. Now, I know I already mentioned it, but the Diamond-Dibvig model, it, it really has been cited many, many times. Professor Diamond actually likened it to Kleenex. Um, I asked both of them whether they were surprised by that. You'll hear Professor Dibvig first. I was surprised. I don't think Doug was surprised. I think Doug understood more how special it was. And, uh, I mean, Doug knew banking a lot better than I did. I was more of a theorist. But I think he understood actually where this might be placed. Yes, particularly like the first couple of years after we published the paper, people tried to like extend it a little bit, you know, and just like drop an assumption, see if, if things change. Turns out it was pretty robust, not much changed. But after a few years, people figured out it was a nice tool to think about financial crises embedded in like macroeconomic models, to think about what happens when you know, the money supply is increased or decreased or there's a tax cut or there's a recession. Other people use the model to think about what happens when the government can't uh, commit itself to either bail out banks or not bail out banks, but they sort of decide after the fact whether they should bail banks out. Lots of different economists took the basic framework, which was designed to be simple, to be easily understood, both of them kept coming back to the simplicity of the model as the key to its success, particularly among regulators. I remember early on, I was at a conference and there was this really smart guy from the FDIC. And I said, you're at the FDIC, what do you do? And he says, I close down banks. <laughs> and I said, well, that's interesting. I said, when you think about banking, you know, what's your framework? How do you think about banks? And he immediately answered, um, you know, from the Diamond-Divvig model. And I was, I was, I mean, partly he was being nice, but partly he, I think he was also serious. So for me to start finding out that this is something that helps policymakers in framing their view of what they're working on was really, really, really gratifying. But I didn't expect it. We said, we've got to write this in a way that average quality central bankers who maybe know economics but don't know economic theory much, they can get the idea. And it's not the kind of model you plug a formula in to figure out how much you should raise the interest rate or something. This is a model you put into your head. And in a crisis, you say, uh oh, this stuff is starting to happen. I need to change gears. So, Gavin, let's talk about the impact of this work. Do you think it was, as they both say, um, its simplicity that allowed it to catch on? And, and how influential has it been? Absolutely, yeah. So if you're writing about bank runs, you can just sort of cite Diamond Dibvig, and there you go, job done. Everyone knows what you're talking about, and you've got a clear description of why and how they happen. But that simplicity is kind of a double-edged sword. There's a lot of things the model misses out about banks. 
in this example, they can't leverage themselves. They can't create new deposits themselves and therefore get into more debt. And often that's actually why bank runs happen, because banks have overextended them in that way. But that's kind of not there in a diamond dividend model. Instead, it's what critics refer to as a sunspots model, in that the bank ones kind of appear as if from outer space, like a sunspot. And so this model of how to prevent a bank run has been really influential on how regulators stop them when they happen. But maybe if it had the leverage there in the first place, then perhaps before the 2008 financial crisis, regulators may have been paying more attention to that massive run-up in leverage that we saw. And we know that Bernanke, in addition to getting this prize, was also probably the most notable example of a central banker taking seriously the importance of liquidity and the potential for bank runs during a crisis. Right, of course. And you could really see the application of those ideas when Ben Bernanke was the Fed chair. He was very proactive in trying to restore the health of the US financial system, whether that was through the Troubled Asset Relief Program or the bailout of AIG. And these were all very controversial at the time. The idea was sort of that to protect Main Street, he had to make sure to protect Wall Street first. And this was something Bernanke acknowledged this week. Now, of course, you know, uh, a scientist should do real-world applications of their ideas. And so from 2006 to 2014, uh, I was involved in a global financial crisis where the uh, problems in the financial sector caused tremendous problems in the real economy, both here and around the world. And thinking about these issues made me very determined to do everything I could, along with my other policymakers, my colleagues, to try to prevent the financial system from melting down, because I strongly believed that if that happened, that would bring down the rest of the economy. Of course, uh, as you know, the world is a very complicated place, and models don't have any room for politics and and lots of other things that were going on. But it did help me think about these issues um, in 2008. Do you think that this Nobel Award is, in a way, a stamp of approval, the committee saying that Bernanke did things correctly? I think it's very hard to interpret it in any other way. You know, they've given this award to someone who most of us know, not from his academic research, but from what he was doing during the 2008 financial crisis. They've not said that's why they've given it to him, but it sends a clear signal that this is them saying, this is the way to do things. And that has kind of been the most controversial part of this award because a lot of people have criticised Bernanke for his actions then. They've said that the easy monetary policy, the bailouts, in the long run, they make financial crises more likely by removing the kind of incentive for bankers to get things right the first time if they know that there's that safety net underneath the economy. I think that is definitely a concern. But when you compare the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis to the Great Depression that Bernanke was studying. Yes, it wasn't great, but it was a lot better than the 1930s. So given this award, do you think that central bankers and regulators have learned their lesson? I mean, we started off hearing from Alice at DevCon in Colombia, and we've spent a lot of time this year on the podcast talking about the need for regulation in crypto and, and likening a lot of what happened this spring essentially to a bank run. Does that suggest we still haven't learned our lesson? Well, I think we've definitely learned our lesson. For the last 14 years or so, we've been talking about bank runs and the financial system almost constantly about the way it works. But I do think actually one of the implications of the diamond dipping model is that a lot of financial institutions are going to be inherently fragile. If you have this desire to provide liquidity, which is what banks do, then that comes with it, the chance of a bank run and run-like behaviour. And we've seen this not just in crypto, but right now in the UK 
Um, pension funds are having run-like dynamics, and that's not from consumers withdrawing their funding, but from counterparties who've done derivatives contracts. And while we understand bank runs and the damage that bank failures can do to the wider economy and have therefore tightened banking regulation, we've seen a lot of the same problems crop up in what's called the non-bank sector, non-traditional lenders. So even though we may understand what's going on, I think we're still a long way from stamping it out completely. Well, Gavin, thank you so much for joining us and making your Money Talks debut. We hope to have you on again soon if this hasn't been too difficult. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Mike, Alice, I'm curious to get your final thoughts. But before we do that, I want to let you know how both Diamond and Dibvig told me they would be celebrating their win. How are you planning to celebrate your your win? I don't know. I'm just I'm 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 just still uh, trying to deal with all the messages. I have friends who say that we need to have a big party. Most of my friends always say we need to have a big party. So I guess things aren't going to really be any different. Big party sounds good. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, well, I haven't really thought about that. I'm going out to dinner with my wife tonight at our favorite restaurant. Today was the warmest day in a while, so I'm celebrating the sort of the last day of uh, uh, warm weather and, and having a very good dinner tonight. You won the Nobel, so congratulations again. Thank you so much for joining us. You ask hard questions, by the way. You, I, 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 I've been getting soundbite questions today. You, you're giving me real questions, so I enjoy that. Thanks, thanks for this. Bye-bye. Dinner and a party sounds delightful. Now, any final thoughts before we turn to our stats? Sure. I mean, in addition to the diamond-divig model being, you know, a sort of very useful and simple model, I guess the thing that has really impressed upon me by their sort of winning of this award is that these sort of three economists um, had sort of two insights that really changed the way that people think about how powerful and important banks are. And together, those two insights really turned common wisdom about the Great Depression on its head. You know, people thought the bank runs were a consequence of the downturn and the banks failed because of the economic depression. And they, you know, weren't necessarily critical in propagating it further. But because of their insights, we came to focus on the idea that actually banks failing is a problem that causes economic downturns. And that when one bank fails, it can knock onto other banks and you can get this sort of wildfire spreading from one to another, even if banks were sound to begin with, and that when banks do fail, they have this sort of catastrophic effect on the economy as credit provision shuts down. So I guess, you know, the thing that I take away from from the sort of Nobel laureate's work is banks are extremely powerful. They're not just a symptom of economic crises. They can be sort of the cause and the catalyst. And those ideas were hugely important in 2008 and sort of remain so now. I guess I just have a sort of a grim and cynical mind in the uh, Nobel Prize wins always get me thinking about the sort of uh, the cruel near misses. And particularly in this case, that would be John Moore and Nobuhiro Kiyotaki, who wrote a seminal paper on credit and collateral and banking and, and showed basically how really small hits to the economy can cause these massive financial effects, which then turn back again into massive economic effects. This is in the aftermath of the Japanese asset bubble bursting in 1989-90, um, which listeners like my family and friends will be tired about me going on and on and on about. But it made me think about them because they were always the names that come up 
uh, when people were talking about Diamond and Dibvig and, and whether these guys would also get the Nobel. And they now, I guess, have to wait for a next round, um, another year, which realistically will probably not be next year because they like rotating these things. Um, likewise, this could have gone to Lars Fenson or Michael Woodford, who uh, I owe a lot to, from my understanding of sort of monetary economics, if they'd gone down the line of giving it to uh, Bernanke and someone else for their contributions to, to macro uh, yeah, because of the way these things work, they'll all be waiting uh, a little while to have another crack at it. And of course, the Nobel cannot be awarded posthumously. Um, so it's nice to think about it that way. Yeah, you have, you have to win it before you before you kick it. I guess. Great. Should we should we go on to your stats, Mike? Yes, please. Um, my stat of the week was inspired by quite a rare, uh, really bad week for uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Uh, the company share price is down uh, about 10% in the last five days. That's not my stat, though. My stat is 5.71%, which is the share that TSMC holds in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Um, so that drop for TSMC this week has wiped about 0.6% off the value of the entire Emerging Markets Stock Index, which I thought was an interesting little example of how indexes can become really exposed to the health of uh, just one company when that company has been doing really, really well for several years running up. Yeah, people always talk about how sort of concentrated the US indices at least were. You know, they were extremely exposed to the sort of five big tech stocks. But uh, five is is more than one at least. Um my stat of the week is a two by four. I realise this probably isn't really a stat and I'm going to get in trouble with my fellow hosts, but I've been seeing a lot of uh, uh, memes going around the finance community, sort of begging Jerome Powell for mercy from his rate cuts as sort of markets slump even further. And this sort of led me to discovering that uh, in the 1970s, a home builder mailed Paul Volcker a two by four piece of wood which he written on the back, help me, help me, because he was begging Paul Volcker to bring down uh, interest rates because uh, home builders had been absolutely crushed by high lending rates. So we've sort of reached the pleading for mercy phase of this interest rate cycle, although I don't know that anyone's sort of shipping these finance memes into Jerome Powell yet. Yeah, not even not even close to a stat, really, is it? I was I was waiting for the bit that was arguably a stat, and it just never arrived. But there you go. You know, it's a it's an interesting little story. Maybe we'll have an interesting little story segment in the future, rather than a stats one. I was like two by four. There are numbers. No. Wow. Not wow. no. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could side with Alice, but I will side with Mike here. So so this week. There's quite a lot of stuff going on in the British economy. Um, uh, things things are somewhat tumultuous. Um, and some might say there is some relevance to this week's episode because of the run dynamics uh, present in, in bits of the, the financial markets. But I can't bear to, to give a stat about that. Um, also, because it seems to be moving by the millisecond. So my stat is 1,352 which is the number of e-scooter crashes in the UK in 2021. That is triple the number of e-scooter crashes the year before. If any uh, potential Nobel Prize winners are listening to this, stay away from the e-scooters then, I guess is the advice. (laughs) Absolutely. Our thanks this week to Philip Dibvig, Douglas Diamond, the Brookings Institution for the Audio We Used of Ben Bernanke, and the Nobel Committee for their audio of the winners. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. 
Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. Our editor was Kim Gittelson. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Hallwood. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.